everybody, this is G Marks, and welcome back to another episode of Biz Books, where I speak frequently to some really smart business authors who write some great books that impact business and sometimes your personal life as well, which brings me to our author and the book that I'm speaking about today. It's called Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. Uh, I am speaking with Chris Voss. Chris, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Gene, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, you know, I said before we started recording, and this is like no insult to the authors that I've I've interviewed, you know, so far up to date. I mean, I've I've read a lot of really great books and spoken to a lot of really great people. This one, uh, this book itself was just one of those books I'm going to really go back and reread. Um, a lot of times in these business books that I read, because um, I've been doing this for a while, I, um, I a lot of it's sort of a, a validating a lot of stuff that I already know. Um, this book taught me a lot of new things, and there was just so much in it that will help me in both my personal and professional life. I, um, it's just one of those books I'm going to bookmark and keep around. So first of all, thank you for writing it. How did you come to write this book? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you wound up here. Yeah, you know, well, I, uh, when I left the FBI after being a FBI hostage negotiator, I, I had a very strong, uh, I knew that the principles applied to business and personal life. Right. I'd gone through Harvard Law School's negotiating course and, and they and I just used the hostage negotiation techniques there and did really well. And then the professors there said, look, man, you're doing the same thing we're doing. It's just the stakes are different, but the dynamics are the same. So I got the, I had the opportunity, I taught at MIT, taught at Harvard, uh, and then uh, got a chance to be a regular instructor at Georgetown in their business school. And mm -hmm. we started helping our students succeed using these skills in their everyday real life negotiations. I just wanted to make sure my son and I, Brandon, you know, this is about the 2009-ish time frame. Before we published the book or before we tried to put the book out, we want to make sure we had a good system and lots of proof of concept. That's one thing to think the stuff applies, but you got to make sure it does or put the nuances to it. So we evolved the Black Swan skills out of hostage negotiation quite a bit. And after our students just killing it. Um, both at Georgetown and at USC in their real world business negotiations, MBA students, uh, we realized it was time to put the book out, uh, pull together a team. You want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. And ultimately, Tal Raz, a co-writer, who's a brilliant writer, brilliant. Right. Any book that Tal Raz touches is a great book. And uh, Brandon and I and Tall put the book out and uh, things kind of took off from there. How long has the book been around? 2016 was published in May of 2016. Yeah. And it has sold quite well. Am I correct? Yeah, it has. You know, I checked this morning and it took a little while for it to get some legs. You know, initially it started out really well. And then we went for a few months where the numbers were fair. Yeah. And then I started doing podcasts like yours and yeah. awards started getting out and it's been number one in the category in the audible and the hardcover is usually anywhere from two to three or four for the last five years. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just, it's funny because uh, yeah, I've written books myself. They get buried in all of the noise. I mean, there's something like 67 billion books are you know, published every year. So, you know, so it's very easy, particularly the business space as well. This one emerged and, and I think it's just evidence to the fact that it's that 
it's not good. It's it's not only unique and it comes from um, a, a real life perspective from an FBI negotiator, but um, the lessons that you teach in it are are stuff that you can really walk away with. And and I, I think it resonates. It really does. So I'm glad that it's doing that well. Do you have any books planned in the future? Are you working on anything now? Well, I just put out a book for residential real estate agents called The Full Fee Agent. <laughs> okay. And that just came out about a, a month ago. I mean, I don't know if you have any real estate, residential real estate agents who we listen do. to the podcast. And I got to tell you something. I think residential real estate agents who are good yeah. uh, at full fee are a bargain. Yeah. You know, like, you know, in the, in the business world, a finder's fee is 10%. Well, real, residential real estate agents are finders. And a full fee, they're only 6%. Right. Like if, if they're any good at what they do, and the book is designed to help them be better at what they do and also get paid full fee. And the crazy thing, my co-author and I, Steve Schull and I uh, found out like some top end real estate agents, you know, in LA and New York, you know, they're doing 10, 20, 30, $40 million deals. I've never gotten full fee because they never asked. Right. Like he's, he's, we've got some ridiculously successful agents who've been in the business seven, eight, nine years who said, I got full fee for the first time. Cause I, I didn't know how to ask. Yeah. So that, you know, we got that book out and then there'll be a follow on to never split the difference. Uh, that's been in development for a while. We're trying to get it right. And uh, my son and I are working on that and, you know, maybe that may be a year out. It's good. And just, you know, let's dig into the concepts of the book in just a minute, but just some, some so for, you know, I mean, there's um, everybody works in their own world. Everybody has this issue about negotiating when you're in a business. Everybody does. Um, right. and, and, you know, and as you say in your book, I mean, everything in life is a negotiation. Everybody also thinks that what they're doing is special. And although you can try and, you know, reason with them that you're not that special, what you're doing is pretty much the same anywhere. Um, it's kind of a losing argument. I guess the reason why I'm telling you this is, you wrote this, you know, you, you wrote this other book for a real estate industry. I mean, Chris, this applies to any specific, I mean, if you tailor this, you could have books for the manufacturing industry, for distribution, for service providers, for architects, for accountants, for lawyers, you know, specifically verticalized for their industry. It's like a never ending. I mean, a lot of the concepts that you have in this book are the same, but you can tailor it, you know, specifically. And I don't know, I think you've got a lot of opportunities out there for, for what's in this book. Yeah, uh, we're, we're toying with that idea, you know, yeah. uh, effectively, you know, it's kind of like chicken soup for the soul. Yeah, that's you know, exactly. chicken, chicken soup for the soul for ice cream salesmen. Yes. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And, you know, it's, a, you know, 80%, 85% of the, the concepts will remain the same, but that other 15% is the real value uh, for that person that's buying the book because they're you know, specifically in a specific industry or job. Okay, let's dig in. You know, we're clearly, you know, we're not going to be giving away, you know, all of the fruits of this book and, you know, I want people to go and buy it, but let's talk about some of the things that you talk about in your book um, and, and just have you kind of elaborate. We'll start with the basics. Okay. Um, you, you talk a little bit about cognitive bias to begin the book. Um, and this is from, you know, decades of research that have come up with this sort of framework. Tell me a little bit about what cognitive bias is. Well, you know, it's, uh, um, it's a, Something that we all have to learn to overcome, which is uh, it's based on a first uh, premise: I'm normal. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you, and and then unfortunately, the golden rule: treat others the way you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. So, if you put those two things together, like uh, you're normal within parameters, but for example, there are three different. We believe that globally, there are three different types 
uh, of negotiators, how they people approach conflict. Thomas Kilman, conflict mode instruments, some stuff I learned from Harvard. And it boils down to fight, flight, make friends. And these are the cavemen that survived. Either you fought, you ran, or you created an ally. Fight, flight, make friends. And we have reason to believe that the world breaks up pretty evenly into thirds. So the first premise, I am normal. Well, no, you're not. Because if, if the world breaks up evenly into thirds, uh, and we've globally tested, and literally globally, easily 25,000 people and seen the world breaking pretty evenly into thirds. Well, if, if that's true, then you're, you're one of those types. You're in a minority. Two out of three people are not you. Right. So the first premise, I am normal, has got some flaws in it. And so then it starts to get worse when you say treat people the way you want to be treated. Like I'm a natural born assertive. And I think of myself as direct and honest. What does that mean? I'm I if I'm direct and honest, you feel like talking with me in my natural assertive style is like getting hit in the face with a brick. Donald Trump is a great uh, is the great poster child of the uh, assertive negotiator kicks chairs across the room, yells at, yells at people, in the short term gets things done, in the long term destroys relationships. So uh, you asked me about cognitive bias. Like I'm biased to my type, thinking I'm normal. I begin to misinterpret people. I begin to think that the way I interpret the world is normal. And then when somebody interprets it differently than me, if I'm normal, well, you by definition have got to be abnormal. Right. And so we start to get off track with this. And, uh, you know, and my, my Harvard brothers and sisters, they really, that was one of the things they really sort of drilled into our head was understanding your biases to begin with, and then just accept that they are biases. And a real trigger to empathy, why it works globally, is working real hard to see it from the other person's perspective. And as soon as your shift is into their perspective, then it doesn't matter if they're Asian or African or Latino, because you're working to see it from their perspective. And it immediately pulls you, begins to pull you out of your own cognitive biases. How about the framing effect? What does that mean? Well, you know, uh, there's, you know, there's monetary framing, there's emotional framing. There's a number of different ways. Uh, it, it, most people know, think of, um, framing uh, and i'm i'm going to start out with and i'm not sure if this is what you're asking me about but okay. monetary framing okay you know, and, and that's like high anchoring mm -hmm. and i'm trying to frame the zone of possible agreement you know one of my harvard brothers and sisters there's a couple of concepts that we you know i we disagree with strongly as being useful this and a lot that we like zone of possible agreement we're gonna we're gonna frame the possibility of where we could make a deal and a lot of people say, well, let me let me frame the zone, but I'm going to ask for a lot. I'm going to ask for a lot of money. I'm going to put a really high price on the table. I'm going to high anchor. And there's data out there that indicates that this is a good practice. And there are some, there's, they're a minority, right. but there are some successful negotiators that high anchor all the time. The problem with framing it uh, monetarily like that is you drive deals from the table. Right. So you got to be careful. And I hate making not making a deal I should have made. I mean, I, that drives me crazy. And a high anchor will do that. I could have made a deal on terms that were more valuable to me, but I scared you away by coming in with uh, a financial asset that was just out of line. And you think, yeah, this dude's crazy and I'm not dealing with him anymore. What we do instead 
we do emotional anchoring. Uh, if I'm concerned, then I should be uh, that my price is high. I'm going to say, look, my price is high. You know, I'm going to charge you a lot of money. Our former head of business development, she had a great story. Um, a client who did business with us was shocked that he did. Mm-hmm. When he inquired about what our price was, she said, we are very, 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 very expensive. Okay. And he has a clear recollection in that moment. He was an experienced, successful salesperson who was dubious as to whether or not we could teach him anyway. He said to himself, I would never say that. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to describe the experience by saying, and two days later, we had a deal at that price. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, what we do is if you're worth your money and if you over deliver and the black swan group over delivers at a conversation with one of our clients the other day that said, Oh, our negotiation training made him $800,000 over the past year. Now, we didn't charge him 10% of that. We charged him a lot of money. Right. But time that we coached him. Believe me, we charged him a lot of money. But we, you know, we, you know, we did $800,000. So we are expensive relative to our competitors. I don't need my price getting in the way of your thinking. Right. So, and we're going to over deliver and we're going to be worth more than you will ever pay us. So right. you got to get price out of the way. And so we put some, we put a framing effect on emotional reactions. And then because we collaborate and we want you to succeed, and these are the caveats of core values, um, then we're going to be worth worth every dime. Isn't it just framing um, also, you know, it's it's how you're presenting an idea to somebody because the, the, the same way you present it to one person may not be the same way you present it to somebody else, correct? I mean, well, and then that kind of becomes a definition of empathy. Yeah. Because if you want to frame everything the same way, then what you're doing is you're being a little tyrannical. Right. You want your way to work with all of them. That's where cross-cultural negotiations get into trouble. You know, Americans go like, you know, cross-cultural negotiations, you know. I, you know, what do I got to do when I'm in the Middle East? I got to make sure that I don't show them the bottoms of my feet and then I only shake with my right hand and I sip tea with them. Well, you're looking for the little things that you can do that make it look like you understand it, but you still want to be yourself, whatever that self is. Right. So as soon as you start focusing on the other person's perspective and demonstrating an understanding of them, then there is some adjustment, not just for culture, but for people. Understand human nature and then understand the human in front of you. Every one of us were born a blank slate. You know, you take any child anywhere, born in China, born in Africa, born in Latin America. They're going to be a product of their geographical surrounding. You, know, you, take, you, take, a, you take an Asian, you grow them up in, in, in the South Bronx in New York City, you got the same character, yeah. no matter what the person's ethnicity is. Yeah. So we're all born a blank slate. We got the same basic wiring. And there, there's evidence of it, of it everywhere. Like Facebook succeeds in every country on earth because everybody wants dopamine. Right. Everybody gets delighted the same way. Everybody, everybody gets reacts the same way. The only the the social media, the only countries that social media is not a force in, are those that ban it. Right. 
So that tells you that we're all wired the same way. So if you start, if that's your starting point, now you begin to adjust to the person in front of you, then yeah, your pitch is going to change because you're going to tailor it to who they are. So my takeaway so far is as we're entering into any negotiation, let's, let's all admit and accept the fact that we have cognitive bias. So we have to be aware of that. Um, and then depending on who you're negotiating with and talking to, um, you, you've got to have empathy for that person. You have to frame your conversation and your questions in such a way that uh, we'll connect with them and we have to know who we're talking to. You, you and, all- and let me let, let me let me let me add a step in there too, Please. because a lot of people say uh, empathy is uh, understanding where the other person is coming from. That's essential and inadequate. Okay, that's you have to demonstrate the understanding, and then maybe you start talking about making your pitch. There's an intermediate step that a lot of people miss. They're like, all right, so I understand where you're coming from. You feel this, this, and this, but they don't say that out loud. So therefore, I'll tailor my approach to what my understanding is. Now, the critical intervening step is making sure that you got the understanding right. And so uh, my friend, Stephen Kotler, brilliant dude, you know, I, I recommend his training, The Rise of Superman and Stealing Fire, phenomenal books. Everybody should read. Stephen says, uh, empathy is about the transmission of information sympathy and uh, compassion are the reaction to the transmission. Interesting. So when you have empathy, you got to demonstrate it. Okay. Fair enough. Um, you talk about there are three types of active listening um, and there are techniques that can you, you can use. You talk about uh, mirroring and silences and what you refer to as the late night FM DJ voice. The late night FM DJ voice. <laughs> Elaborate on what you mean by that and the other, and, and also mirroring and silence as well, because active listening seems to be a critical, critical thing you need to do when you're having a conversation or negotiating with anyone. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's proactive listening, okay. and it's um, informed listening. What are we proactive about? What are we informed about? understand human wiring that we talked about before like whichever type we are we're in in survival mode which is the default mode of thinking Mm -hmm. we're negative you know you're pessimistic like "Ah, i gotta worry about this outcome you're gonna predict 15 of the three possible disasters you know like economists economists have picked have accurately predicted 15 out of the last three actual recessions they're always (laughs) saying it's guy's fault but that's human nature. Sure. So you, you, you proactively, I got to understand that you're you're probably in survival mode. Success mode is highly positive, but we don't wake up in success mode. We got to override the system to stay in success mode. You do gratitude exercises. You meditate. You, you work out. You do all the self-maintenance things that people tell us that contribute to our success. Why do we do these? Because survival is, mode is negative. Okay. So knowing that, number one, I know that in advance. Number two, I know the best way to deactivate that is to simply call it out, not deny it, but to call it out. Now, these are the tools that you were talking about a few minutes ago for proactive. Uh, Am I labeling? Am I mirroring? Am I using dynamic silence? Am I giving you a chance to think? I'm using these because I'm informed in advance that you're probably in survival mode and that fear of loss is the single biggest impact on your decision-making, followed closely by identity, followed by your vision of the future. Vision drives the decision. 
if I got these guidelines to begin with and I'm listening to you, I'm going to be very proactive as to teasing these out. And then I'm going to be proactive with the use of the skills to either deactivate or nurture the emotions that are going to influence how you uh, make decisions. Vision drives decision. Emotion drives vision. You begin to see the linkage and how this works. So I'm going to use the hostage negotiation skills because hostage negotiation just works because you're a human being. And then I'm going to say, uh, it seems like something's on your mind. Mm -hmm. When we're talking and like, for example, right now you're listening intently. Yep. And you're giving me physical feedback that you're listening intently, but you're not just listening, you're processing. Yep. And if I say, if I say to you, what's on your mind, these are two, I'm going to put you in two vastly different parts of your brain versus it seems like something's on your mind. When I say what's on your mind, you're going to stop and think, stop you. That's a stop you in your tracks question. Danny Kahneman would call, I've just put you in slow thinking mode, deep contemplation. Okay. And two parts of that number one i put you in that slow thinking mode con contemplative mode and you may or may not answer but if you do answer it will be after serious consideration of the answer okay now sometimes that's a great thing to do but if i don't want you to think about the answer i just want the answer i don't want to stop you in your tracks I want you to just give me a basically straight unvarnished download. I'll say, it seems like something's on your mind and you're much more likely to just start giving me a stream of consciousness, unvarnished. You're not being deliberately deceiving before, just being contem contemplating is going to hold back some information. So I know that those two things trigger you to be in different parts of your head depend upon where we are in the conversation so we can advance together, I will pick one over the other. And do you do that a lot when you're talking to people? Do you ask them what's on their mind? Do you, do you pause and um, give people time to process whatever that conversation is? Uh, depends. And so the, your first response to that is like, well, what does it depend on? You're not telling me, any, you're not helping me by saying it depends. People uh, always depends. say it depends, as I've gotten right, older. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's, a that's a classic hostage negotiator line. Even even guys on my team will say that when we're coaching. Yeah. And so I'll say, what does it depend on? So we yeah. get some guidance. Right. What it depends on is to which one of those I use is going to be, do I simply uh, want you to think about something versus do I want the answer? What's an IU? Did you just say an IU? Uh, I'm, I'm, I must have babbled. You <laughs> said it's one of those IUs, and I was like, "Did I miss a uh, like some type of acronym for something?" Oh no, no, no! <laughs> okay, I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. That's fine. That's fine. Um, Carry on. So, so if you do ask somebody, if if you are saying like, "What's on your mind?" and my response is, "Well, it depends." Yeah, you know, it depends. Um, your your response back is, "Okay, so what does it depend on?" Right. So you are, or if 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 you give me depend, it depends. Okay, it's an answer. Yeah, it is an answer, um, but it opens up the door to more questions. Yeah, I'm going to say it seems like you have some things specific that you're thinking about. Yeah, because that's going to uh, yeah. you can only answer so many what or how questions before you're out of gas, right. before your mental gas tank is empty. Right. And 
Um, so then whether or not I use a label seems like something's on your mind or calibrated question, what's on your mind is going to depend a lot on what time of day it is, what the energy level that you have is and whether or not I, you know, I'm, I'm, whether or not I'm looking for commitment from you. Okay. Um, had had a, uh, incredible conversation just a couple of days ago with a former minister of a church. Uh, and he was talking about, he changed his, his call to the Pope, you know, his Christian guy, getting people to bring their, their, uh, give themselves to Jesus. But this is just a decision. Yeah. You know, this is, this is, this is no different, you know, ministers are selling, negotiating like everybody else is. Sure. And he was telling me that, you know, the, the call to Jesus used to be, do you want to have a better relationship with Jesus? You know, do you want this? Do you want that? All these yes or no questions. And instead, he switched them to two no-oriented questions followed by a calibrated question because he needed a good, solid decision for a mm-hmm. course of action. Mm-hmm. So instead, he'd say, are you against having a closer relationship with Jesus? Is it a ridiculous idea for you to give your life to Jesus Christ? If the answers to those questions are no, what's stopping you from coming forward now? And that's the calibrated question. That's the calibrated question. Now, he what he wants is, and what any person wants in a change of behavior, is for you to really think about the answer before you move mm. and make sure you're good with it. Mm. Instead of being caught up in a moment, which is this whole yes nonsense, mm. it gets people caught up in a moment and it really, everybody's enthusiastic, but these are not decisions that last. When you say to somebody, what's stopping you from doing this now? You want that person to stop and think about the barriers. Okay. Not the advantages, but the barriers. Because the, the barriers are going to be repetitive. And you have to decide that you can handle the barriers. Okay. Because in survival mode, we're negative. Okay. You know, we need, we need to rise up to overcoming barriers instead of being euphoric about the gains. So what's stopping you from moving forward now under any circumstances, a person is going to stop and think and they're going to think about the obstacles and they're going to envision themselves overcoming their obstacles and then they're going to move forward. And that's a solid decision. How does this dovetail into overall active listening to, to mirroring and to um, that late night FM DJ voice that you refer to? Well, a vision drives decision. So I'm going to mirror and label to tease out what your vision is. Okay. What's driving that vision, the emotions that are driving that vision. I'm going to, mirroring is a great skill. It's best used in place of what do you mean by that? Okay. Like, and it's ridiculous how much more effective that is. Because if I say something that you don't completely understand and you say, what do you mean by that? I'm going to say it again, only louder, like an American overseas, right? Is mirroring really repeating back to the person what they've, what they've said? Um, It's it's repeating back like one to three ish words, exactly what they've said. Right. Um, Could, it can be just one. It should never be more than five. That's we, we say three ish. If you get more than five, you're really paraphrasing. Is it a form of question that you're asking back or is it more of a confirmation that you're taking in what that person is saying so that there's a sort of a mutual understanding that, you know, that, that I'm getting what you're, what you're trying to convey. It's, it's dealer's choice. Right. And 
that's up to each human being, you as an artist, right? getting a feel for whether or not you want to confirm that you got it, which is downward inflection. Okay. I said, you know, um, it's really important to me that, that people understand emotional intelligence. You could mirror, understand emotional intelligence. Right. That's a mirror downward inflected. Right. And I'm going to feel like you got it and I'm going to feel good. And I'm probably going to go, yeah, you know, emotional intelligence, it's really what drives us. It's a universal aspect of all people. Or you could make it a question by upward inflecting and go, understand emotional intelligence? And I'm going to really, that's going to land really well with me. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say, yeah, well, you know, a lot of people don't understand emotional intelligence. And then I'm going to launch into that. Mm -hmm. That instead of, if you would have said, what do you mean by emotional intelligence? And I'm going to be like, emotional intelligence. Right. Emotional intelligence. Right. I'm just going to say it again. Right. Only louder. Think. But when you marry, you tell me, I got the words, but I need more. And I heard, and to prove to you that those words that you gave me, unfortunately for me, were inadequate. You, when you repeat them back to me, my brain says, oh, well, I got to explain it a different way. Got it. Got it. And, you know, and I know this, this, your answer to this is always, because it's got to be a lot in your job. It's just, it depends. It depends. Cause you don't really know whether you use a downward inflection and upward inflection. You don't know whether to mirror or not. Um, it, it really has to do with the person that you're talking to and uh, the situation around it. Right. I mean, you've got to make that judgment and I'm assuming Chris, there's no, there's no playbook for how you make that judgment, which direction you take. It's got to be something that you just have to, feel yourself based on the conversation is that is that fair yeah well and how you develop the field is through practice you know small stakes practice for high stakes results yeah mirroring in particular like to teach somebody in mirror i'm going to tell you like look mirror all day on tuesday yeah or mirror for over lunch every day chances are you got a whole bunch of small stakes conversations during lunchtime and you know just walk around uh, mirroring is awkward only for the user who's not used to it. Right. Understood. And so, and then, then every time you mirror and you get a reaction, you start feeding your own internal database of when to upward inflect and when to downward inflect. And in a real short period of time, your gut instinct is going to have a massive amount of data where you will really get good at picking which way you want to say it. Okay. Um, and before we leave this, the, the whole, you know, conversation of active listening, um, I, I have to, I mean, you did mention the, the late night FF DJ voice. What, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, and it's, it's a, it's calming, soothing voice. Okay. Which is downward inflecting. Um, we got a, a lot of, uh, several courses for women, the women's power hour negotiating for women, Sandy Hines, uh, our black swan, um, Marcella Oakley also, and women all the time are like, well, I don't have a deep voice. I can't do the late night FM DJ voice. Well, it's really about downward inflecting. And so how do you, uh, do you drop your chin? Are you, in order to downward inflect, all you got to do is drop your chin when you talk. And you got a natural downward inflection. It's calming and soothing. It actually creates uh, a neural change in the other person's brain. Neural uh, is um, involuntary. Like I can slow your brain down with the sound of my voice. Right. I 
you can fight it, but you can't stop me from starting the process. It's not a choice on your part. Now, it could be a choice to try to speed back up, but that was the biggest thing from hostage negotiation the, is a late night FM DJ voice. We used it everywhere. And the crazy thing is hostage negotiators get into fewer arguments with terrorists than business people get into with each other. Right. Now, how could that, how, how could that insanity be? <laughs> that yeah. the terrorists are more reasonable. <laughs> no, the hostage negotiators are using a late night FM DJ voice. All right. Message received. Message received. All right. Listen, there's so much in this book that I wanted to ask you about, and I'm never going to have the time to do it all. But let me let me jump around a little bit, Chris. Sure. Um, tell us what an accusation audit is and why we should know about it. Yeah, well, um, an accusations audit is you do an audit of all the accusations they could possibly make against you okay. and go crazy. Like, and you're the best way to come up with the list is to start with what do I want to deny? What what I want them not to think based on my experience. If they've never met me, um, my gut instinct tells me I don't want them to think I'm greedy because everybody thinks the counterpart's greedy. Right. So it's a two millimeter shift from the denial to the observation. You make your list of all the stuff you'd want to deny, and instead of denying it, say you're probably going to think I'm greedy. In every business deal, in every business interaction, at some point in time, people are going to ask themselves, am I wasting my time here? Mm. So you say, you know, you're probably going to ask yourself if you're wasting your time. You're probably going to ask yourself if there are better alternatives. You know, mm -hmm. you make a list. And then because of what we talked about before, survival mode, mm -hmm. you get proactive. Mm -hmm. The crazy thing about calling out the negatives, and it's delightful, mm -hmm. is it doesn't, if you call out a negative that's not there, it doesn't plant it. It inoculates from it. You create a barrier from the negative thought. Uh, you know why this works? I don't know. And I don't care. I just know it works. I would love to be able to explain all these mechanisms and many of them we can, but as layman, the black swan group has a long history of proving that the accusations audit is ridiculously effective. You open up with that. What you do is you put people in a mindset to be collaborative much more quickly because their negative thinking has been deactivated. It's not clouding their move forward. So the accusations audit is just like, it's exclusively the, it's the single biggest thing we teach people when we're coaching them through difficult negotiations. And it's really just to come up with, you know, what those accusations would be about you or objections that you can foresee in advance and then addressing it right up front. Is that right? Like exactly. Not avoiding them and not waiting for them to even ask you about it, but to be upfront about what those, what those issues would be. Right. Yeah. Amen. It's calling out the elephant in the room to get, to get either diminished or get the elephant to leave. Just calling yeah. it out. Next question for you is about the F word. It's not, the word. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the word we're expecting. Uh, right. You're the, the word you need, which you say is the most powerful word in negotiations is fair. Tell us why. Yeah. Powerful or, you know, I, I emotional. Right. And so if fair is nuanced, it's really interesting. Um, I will tell you the word comes up in every negotiation that's out there, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and mostly in a bad way. We've given you a fair offer. Well, you try, if the other, it's an emotional jab at the other person, if they don't take it, they're unfair. Mm -hmm. I'm being fair. You're being unfair. It yeah. comes up all the time. Yeah. It's people have a tendency to use it 
when their position is not really defensible. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's not defensible, they, they're defensive and they feel emotional. And so they're throwing out, throwing out the F-bomb. I mean, it comes up so often. But the word fair is it, it I mean, it, it's an essential word to use in negotiations and it can be used effectively, right? Not what you just said, which is, you know, I'm, I'm being fair in this offer. Like that automatically presumes that I have an advantage that I'm just making the you know, presumption that I am, you know, my offer is the best offer to you. Um, isn't the right approach to, to ask that question of the person that you're talking to? Do you think this is fair? Um, is that- um, no, uh, you're close. You're really close because fairness as a value is critical yep. to great interactions. Um, fair is so uh, difficult to, to define. Yes. Um, and, and in most cases, people drop the F-bomb because they don't have good, solid data otherwise. Uh, example, uh, so that I could clear this up a little bit. One of the best people I know in the world, a number of years ago, uh, this person is a phenomenal human being, one of the most decent people I've ever met. Integrity, all the integrity you could ever ask for. Uh, her and her significant other, and now I'm, you know, I was trying to avoid uh, putting gender on her, but she mm-hmm. and her husband are selling her house in a in a real estate market that had just declined substantially. Okay. And she got the buyer to raise their price higher because she said, we're just looking for a fair offer. Right. And the buyer came up. Now, how is that fair to the buyer? Yeah. The buyer's problem, the real estate market dropped. Right. Those are market conditions. Right. They're making an offer based on what the current market is. Right. Now, a year earlier, the market was much higher and and the sellers, you know, they still got the vision of the previous market and they didn't do anything. They were holding a solid asset that declined dramatically in value. Right. So they felt a feeling of unfairness by an external condition that costs them money. But this in reality is not the buyer's problem. Right. And so, you know, they they got a higher offer. And that was the first time it really jumped out at me because I thought fair can be a very manipulative word. Like the cutthroat negotiators are going to hit you with, I'm being fair. I've given you a fair offer. Cutthroats use that because they know how effective it is to getting you off your position, to get you to doubt yourself. Right. But here was a person who was not cutthroat, who was a great person who dropped it because they had a gut instinct that they lost. If the, if they, if, if the, if the market was under offer, what would she have said instead? She'd have said, look, the market price, you're not coming up to the market price. You, you know, you want to buy this house. She'd have had actual data and criteria. So the other person is telling you they have a lack of external criteria to support their position, but they feel that they've lost a disadvantage in a way that they had no control over. So they dropped the F-bomb. Got it. So what's the takeaway with the word fair then? I mean, is it is it something, I mean, you mentioned earlier that it gets used in every negotiation. Uh, do you use it in a negotiation? Do you think it is um, a, a good tactic to, to use by saying that, uh, to, to come to an agreement on what is fair or not? Or is it something that you avoid mentioning? No, I, I got to tell you, I avoid it entirely. 
Uh, you know, there was, a, there was a point in time in contentious negotiations. If I knew it was going to be contentious before I wanted to lay out my position, I'd say, look, at any point in time, if you think I'm being unfair, I want you to stop me. Okay. And we'll talk about it. Okay. That's good. That is the right and, and I And I will tell you now, we are so much into collaborative negotiations without wasting each other's time. If, if I want to use the word fair, it's an indicator to me that we're off track. Best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. If we're off track at this point in time, we're probably always going to be off track. Okay. We, got, we got a difference in core values. And if we got a difference in core values, uh, it's not going to work long term. So, uh, you know, your question is really interesting to me because it just made me realize in a moment I don't use the word fair at all. If fairness comes up as an issue, this is going to be a bad, painful deal that is going to end up bad. If if our core values match, we're going to do great business together and yeah. fair is never going to come up because we live our values. You know, if the conversation um, is going the right way um, and both people feel that they're getting value from it, um, there should be no reason to bring up the word fair. It, it almost seems as if it's right. being used in a, in a defensive way to try and justify what your position is. And uh, if your position needs to be justified by calling it fair, then I'm not quite sure that it's a fair position at all. Um, so, okay. One final question then for you, and I'm going to let you go. I mean, again, Chris, I, get, I have so many more, but just, just tell us, you know, our audience, our listeners, our viewers, what is the 738.55 rule, the, the percent rule, 738.55% rule? Explain what that is and why you think it's important. Yeah, this is the black swan's interpretation of a piece of data that came from a study a long time ago. I have to interrupt you. I have to interrupt you. You, you do keep referring to the black swan, and I want to make sure that we all understand what you mean when you refer to the black swan. Yeah, well, my company is a black swan group. Okay. And, you know, I'm not the only my fault guy. for not saying that at the beginning and intro and we'll make sure that we get that contact information on the screen as you know, when we put this conversation through post-production. Um, but OK, so your company is the Black Swan Group. Go ahead. Right. Fair, and, fair you know, as a team, it, it's our methodology, <laughs> the Black Swan methodology, the Black Swan approach. There's a lot of meanings to it. You know, what are the little things that make all the difference in the world? Those are black swans. Okay. The impact of the highly improbable. Okay. Little things that make huge differences. So the 738, 55% rule? Yeah, well, so the analysts that are listening to us have already calculated those numbers and those numbers add up to 100%, 100. They do. I'm going to count so, I already added it and you're right. Uh, it's 100%. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, a component is broken and is the message is carried by via three means. The, the strict meaning of the words themselves, the way that I say them, my affect, my tone of voice, my pace, my enthusiasm, and my body language. The seven is the, the word definition. Okay. The 38 is the tonal, tonal delivery, the voice delivery, verbal delivery. The 55 is the body language. You're going to You're interpret my meaning. 55% of the messaging is, is, is body language. I mean, which is equivalent to both the actual definition and the tone of voice, you know, combined. Yeah. It's that important body language, correct? Yeah. 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 I, I, what, what fascinates me about that point of view, which I, I completely get that when you're doing face, you know, face to face or even maybe something on video, but how you know, 
how do you compensate for that if a lot of negotiations do, you know, are conducted by phone, or even if they're negotiated like you and I are doing this right now over a Zoom call, you know? I mean, if, if body language is so important to a negotiation, um, how, do you, how do you compensate for the fact that so many negotiations, you know, body language isn't really seen? Right. Yeah, great question. Um, tonality. All, if you really focus on tonality, hostage negotiators, we did everything over the phone. Right. I never had body language. Okay. And once you learn to just listen to tonality and then test it with labels and mirrors, you don't need body language at all. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, get, I get to tell you, <laughs> Stevie Wonder is great at picking up what people are saying to him and he can't see him. You know, and he's so he, he's so good at it, actually, that there's, you know, there are jokes out there that Stevie Wonder can actually see because he's so good at perception. He ain't got no he ain't got no body language to to focus on. He's he got nothing but tone of voice. Got it. Got it. That's how much information there is there. Now, I will tell you uh, that your question comes up a lot, especially in the age of Zoom, because people huh. say, well, you know, we don't have any body language. First of all, you got as much as you do on a Zoom call as you would if you were sitting face to face in a conference room, because you can only see people from waist up in a conference room anyway. Also true. What I think the real thing is, is that I think there's actually an energy field uh, and we, uh, you know, energy fields, we just don't have the instrumentation to pick it up yet. There are a lot of, there are a lot of solid neuroscientists, Andrew Huberman be, being one of them, who believes that it exists, but Andrew Huberman is such a great scientist. And until the data is that are supported, he's not coming out with his personal opinions unless there's substantive data that's been peer reviewed to support it. I think what throws people off on Zoom is that the, the feel that we've had for each other, you know, can feel energy in a room. Can. I'm completely can. convinced. That's gone. And I think that's what's really throwing people off more than anything. Else. And it's funny, too, because as somebody, I mean, I've been in sales all of my life, even though I'm an accountant. And, um, you know, I close more deals when I'm when I'm with people face to face. Um, I close, you know, a little bit more if I can do it this way over than just the phone, but there is nothing to match just being face to face. If you and I are in the same room, there is a certain energy that gets uh, transferred. We are reading each other's body language and it just helps to kind of makes us connect that much more. And so I, I think that, I think that you're absolutely right. So um, Chris, again, the, the book is called never split the difference negotiating as if your life depended on it. Um, guys, I've been speaking with Chris Voss. I highly recommend that you buy this book. Anybody that's in business um, that has to do negotiation, which frankly is anybody that runs a business or is a manager in a business, and it's any type of negotiation this applies to. This is not a hostage situation, <laughs> um, although you might feel that way sometimes in customer conversations. Um, it is a, uh, it's really a powerful, meaningful book, and I am going to reread it very, very soon and keep it by me. So Chris, I want to thank you so much for joining me. It was a great conversation. I want to wish you best of luck. And I'm, I'm very anxious to see uh, future books from you. Jane, thank you very much. My pleasure being on. Take care then. Everybody, you've been watching another episode of Biz Books. My name is Gene Marks. Thank you for tuning in, watching, or listening. We'll be back another couple of weeks with another great author of another great business book. We will see you again soon. Take care.